ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Norate Hilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtacha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu le totafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. With Thou, O Lord, art I above all the earth. 
Thou art exalted far above all God.
Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Our Torah portion this week comes from the book of Deuteronomy. We're coming down to our final weeks of the year and being in the fifth book of Moses. And our portion actually begins in um, Deuteronomy chapter 11 at the verse 26. The first word you see there is the word see, and the Hebrew for that is re'eh. Now, this portion is going to be an interesting portion. It's part of, it will start the second discourse of Moses. If you recall, I told you that in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses makes five speeches. And this is the start of the second speech coming up here very shortly where he gives, and it appears that when he wrote this book, he wrote a first part, then he wrote a second part, then he wrote a third part. So there's, there's a solid thinking uh, and there's a logic to each of the presentations. And we're getting ready to start the second discourse uh, here of it. If you'll remember back in the first one, he was recounting events that took place, and, and thus we get the name of the book Deuteronomy, the repetition of the law, uh, where he repeated what the Ten Commandments said and so forth. But now we're going to shift into some teaching. And Moses is going to give us the benefit of his experience and time that he's had with the Lord to understand uh, some key things about a people trying to obey the Lord. Before I go any further into the portion, I want to back up just a couple of verses because there's a particularly powerful point uh, that is part of the transition from history to now this teaching, and it's just up in verse uh, 22 of chapter 11, which says, uh, For if you are careful to keep all this commandments which I'm commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all the nations from before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. So he's saying the path to success is three things that you need to love the Lord, you need to obey the Lord, and finally, you need to cling to the Lord. The reason I mention this is because this is fundamentally, in a nutshell, trying to explain what Moses is going to be trying to teach now. He's going to try to emphasize that these three steps are key to your uh, spiritual maturity. Now, when we first come into the faith, well, the first thing that we're confronted with is to love God. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. And we're taught that. Now, if you get into Torah, then the next thing we teach you is, well, there's commandments of God, and you need to obey those commandments and to continue to keep, like, um, kosher, a Sabbath, 
festivals and other behavioral kinds of things where the commandments apply. But then there's a third dimension, and this is where Moses is going to be going to and and throughout the course of this book, and that is to cling to the Lord. And the picture of clinging to the Lord, the best way I can give it to you, the word picture is where you have a father that's standing with and he's standing there, and you have a small boy, his son, and the, the boy sees something that's threatening to him, something that he's fearful of. And what he does, he goes up to his father's leg and he grabs hold of his father's trousers and he holds on to his father's leg and he buries his face into his trousers. He's clinging to his father, uh, which is sending the clear signal that the father will protect him and that he wants the protection of the father. That are Those are the three levels, literally, of you spiritually maturing. You need to learn how to love the Lord and build a relationship with him. Number two, you need to learn to obey the Lord so you can get blessings. But finally, you need to get to the point where you cling to the Lord. And so Moses is going to be giving some additional instruction that that gets us on that path. Every Torah teacher, and myself included, included, my goal with you in sharing and teaching the Torah is those three steps. I'm trying to encourage you to step through those three steps to get all three of those things working in your life. So with that said as an introduction, let's talk about what Re'es is all about. Well, it turns out that um, he's dealing with something that's very practical. Uh, let me, Kate, let me uh, give you an example of something. I've, uh, you're, you're in a discussion with a fellow, and you lay out kind of what you think is the right thing to do and the way things ought to be done. And all of a sudden, you are in this discussion with this guy who doesn't agree with you. He doesn't want to do it that way. Uh, and, and he'll make the statement to the effect, well, I just don't see it that way. I just don't see it that way. In fact, I, I just this last week... I was in a conversation with a pastor, and uh, he said, well, I just don't see it that we have to keep the dietary restrictions like you guys do. And I said, yeah, that's right. I can see that you don't see it that way. Here's the problem, and this is what Moses is going to be teaching about. God says you're not supposed to follow after your eyes. You're supposed to listen to what the Lord says. You're supposed to hear what God says. Faith does not come by sight. Faith comes by hearing. And anytime you hear someone say, well, I don't see it that way, what he's assessing, what he's doing is he's taking his will, he's putting it above everybody else's will, including God, and he's deciding what he's going to do and what he's not going to do, regardless of whether it's even God who said it. By the way, that is not faith. I can assure you that is definitely not faith. Uh, Faith would be you hear what God says and you say, I got to do that. And you go and you do it. Now, what follows in this Torah portion, uh, just real briefly to hit, Moses is going to talk about essentially five things. And this theme about you don't do it the way you see it, do it the way the Lord has said. 
is is it reoccurs and it and it deals with for example right off the bat the whole business of god you don't uh when you hear about god and you decide about the things of god you don't make those decisions based on the way you see it you do it on the basis of what god has said about himself god is who god says he is not the way you see it now we got a lot of people today and, and you'll hear the statements. I've heard the statements throughout all of my life. Well, uh, I just don't believe God would ever do. He would judge all those people. Well, that's the way you see it, but that's not the way God says it. Um, and whenever you do that, um, you're bordering on moving into idolatry. And God is warning you, do not follow after your own sight, your own eyes concerning that. In fact, one of the things back in the book of Numbers they gave us as a commandment was this thing about tzitzitz. This is the practical lesson of this Torah teaching. Uh, He said, put these tzitzitz, put these tassels on the corners of your garment. He said, so that when you see them, that you will know that you're not to follow after your eyes, which go a-whoring for idols, but rather you will remember the commandments that God spoke and that you will obey what God said, not necessarily the way you see it. You follow your own eyes in the faith, they will lead you astray. You must follow the instructions of God. We have a picture of the relationship that God had with Abraham, a very striking one. It said that Abraham walked before God. Uh, the picture you have is God is here and Abraham's out in front. He's walking before God. Now, how does Abraham uh, get instructions on where he should go? Based on what he sees? Oh, I think we should go that way. I'll go that way. No. If you're going to walk before God, you're going to listen to God's instructions. And what he said to Abraham was, to the right now, Abraham, or to the left, or go straight, or stop, or whatever. He will listen to his verbal instructions as opposed to Abraham what he sees. In life, in general, you will look out into the future, and you're going to see a lot of awesome and fearsome things. When you look at the future, it's fearful. What should I do? Well, if you're following after your eyes, it'll turn you into a coward. That's what happened to the spies when they went in with their eyes and saw the land. They came back, they were cowards. And they turned the people away from going into the land instead of following the instruction that was God's promise, go into the land. So there's lots of lessons with regard to that. And there's a huge one with regard to how do we regard God and our relationship with him. The second element that it does It deals with how we deal with other people. Are you going to listen to what other people tell you that you should do, or are you going to listen to what God says that you should do? And oh, by the way, including members of your own family, of your own house. Will you prefer them over that which the Lord has said? Then there's a, and you'll love this one, there's an issue about food what you're going to consume. Now, I can tell you right now, I've seen some of these cooking shows where they've got shrimp and lobster and pork 
and they can make the dish look very attractive to the eye. It, it looks very attractive, and, and, and there's a kind of a temptation there in the sight. Oh, I wonder how delicious that might be, and so forth. Uh, but God says, don't follow your eyes. He said, follow my instructions. Follow my definition of what is food. Follow my definition of what is clean and unclean. And eat the things which I tell you are food for you to eat. Don't consume of the other things. And so it comes down to a a situation of what are you going to do? I've heard uh, when I've seen some brethren who were considering about turning messianic. They were considering about keeping Sabbath and learning about Torah and so forth. And the moment they found out that they got to give up bacon, why all of a sudden they're hesitating. And and they'll say, well, man, I, I like the look of bacon. That's right. You, you, you're following your eyes instead of the instructions of the Lord that you hear. And the lesson is being given here that food also has to be based on what you hear from God, not based on what you see. Uh, The next one is the one that really gets everybody's attention, and that is what you do with your money. And every one of us, um, uh, we we make decisions um, about how we see things with regard to money. You make an investment uh, based on the you see that you're going to get an increase. Uh, if you see warning and there's risk and you think you can lose, you don't invest there. You see, you do it based on what you see, what you're trying to see. You're trying to look into the future to find out where to put your money and how to spend your money and things like that. And God says, no, that's not how you will make those kinds of decisions. And what he comes down to for basic instruction is stop following your eyes that want Start meeting your needs, and if you'll use your money to take care of your needs instead of your wants, you'll be a whole lot better off. You'll be, you'll be in good shape. And one of the things that he says to help you to manage your money is to learn how to tithe, to learn how to give from that first part, one-tenth of your increase, back to the Lord to do the things of the kingdom. And that if you'll do that, then blessings will follow, and other thing, good things will follow. It's a very simple thing, but, but that would be you would have to follow the commandment. You'd have to follow the instruction of the Lord. But what if you have this super hot stock tip? Oh, you know, you can double your money. Gold, silver, it's going to increase. I mean, the world is full of the advertisements, and they got flashy ads and so forth. If you end up following your eyes you will not be successful. You won't. And so God is giving the instruction here through Moses, don't follow your eyes when it comes to your money. And then the final thing that he covers in the store portion is about how to deal with yourself. What you decide to do. There is a, there's a reference to the Valley of Shechem in this portion when it gets to that part. Shechem, by its meaning, means shoulders. And have you ever seen the little cartoon thing where they've got an angel sitting on one shoulder and they have a devil sitting on another shoulder, and they're both arguing into the guy's head 
trying to get him to make a decision one way or the other. When it comes to um, when it comes to making decisions about yourself, what you intend to do with your life, how you intend to proceed, things like who do you marry, you know, things like that. Who do you call your friends? Who do you make as companions and so forth? You make those decisions. And the Lord gives you counsel along the way on what would be to your best benefit. He's like that angel on the one shoulder. But if you're in this battle and you've got this other thing on your shoulder that's telling you to go the other way, you need to learn that the decision that I need to make here is to follow what the Lord says. I need to follow the principles of what the Lord has said about how to live and how my life should be. And you make decisions about whether or not you're going to be kind or unkind, whether you're going to be angry or not angry, a a whole assortment of decisions you'll make. And so this portion is telling it, don't follow the way you see it. Follow the way the Lord has said. All right, so that's a quick review of the Torah portion. So let's look at what the Haftor portion has to do with. And uh, for that, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 54, and, and we're going to be at verse 11. Now, before I get into this, for the last two weeks, I've been sharing with you that we're in this period of, of the Haftors that are referred to as the Haftors of Consolation. There are seven specific Haftors. In fact, this one that we're getting ready to look at is the third one in the set of seven. I've already covered the first two with you. And if you've been with me the last couple of weeks, uh, I've made reference to the Haftors of Consolation. This is the oldest sermon that has been known to be taught from the Bible. And Torah teachers take these Haftor portions and they make a teaching out of it. Now, since we've gotten into it just a little bit, I'm going to go ahead and give you a review of the whole seven. We'll reiterate in the weeks ahead, but I'm going to show you how they all tie together uh, for it. Let me take you first to Isaiah 54 at verse 11, where uh, it says, O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, your foundations I will lay in sapphires. Moreover, I will make your battlements of rubies and your gates of crystal and your entire wall of precious stones, and all your sons will be taught of the Lord, and the well-being of your sons will be great. In righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression, for you will not fear, and from terror it will not come near you. If anyone fiercely assails you, it will not be from me. Whoever assails you will fall because of you. And then he goes on further to say, Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire or the coals and brings out a weapon for its work, and I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will um, uh, condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me. Now, at first blush... You're asking yourself, now, what has that got to do with the Torah portion that we just had? How how does that relate? Well, again, the answer to this is we're looking at a set of seven Haftorah portions, and there is a 
continuity in those seven that stands out. This is how we're coming to the conclusion of the Torah teaching cycle, the annual Torah teaching cycle, and we're coming to this point, and this is the third one. Let me go back and give you the first two. In, two weeks ago, we had the Hoftor portion that came from Isaiah 40 and verse 1. It said, Comfort, O comfort my people, O Israel. Last week, we had the portion that was from Ekev, and it was the verse that came from Isaiah 49, 14, where the Lord has forsaken me and forgotten me. Now, the stage is now set. There is the sermon. God issues this edict that he wants Israel to be comforted. However, Israel, you see, is scattered in the nations. Israel has been, is being judged by God for our misbehavior. So we're, we don't feel comforted. In fact, we feel we've been forsaken. We've been forgotten. We've been cast off. And that's certainly what the church teaches happened to Israel. Israel misbehaved, so God kicked them out and has forsaken them. And God, they're not dealing with them anymore. Well, yes, the prophets recognize and this Haftor recognized that's the feeling that you have, but that's certainly not what follows. This week's portion says, O oh, afflicted and storm-tossed. He says, Oh, I, I recognize that you feel you're afflicted. I recognize that you feel like that the storm has come in and has just blown your whole house to smithereens and you're up in the air and you don't know which end is up and you don't know what direction is north and, and everything is unsettled and chaotic and so forth. And he's recognizing that Israel is in that position being in exile. But then he turns around, recognize that they have that feeling, and he says... Um, he says, look, he says, I'm, I'm going to do some things with you. I'm going to, I will set your stones in antimony in your foundations. I will lay in sapphires. Your whole house was upset. Let me tell you what I'm going to do with your house. Now, if you look at the language here about these different stones and battlements and the gates of crystal and so did you know that there's a parallel piece of scripture in the New Testament that's almost like this? It's in Revelation chapter 21, beginning at verse 9. In Revelation 21, it talks about the 144,000, the remnant, being made into a wall that will be for New Jerusalem. The foundation stones, named after the fossils. The gates, named after the tribes of Israel. The wall, though, is made up of precious stones, and it's referring to the ministry of the 144,000. Here is the passage that drives what John gave us in Revelation 21. So right off the bat, let me say something to you about this final teaching of Haftor's. The Haftor's consolation were addressed to specifically be given to what the last generation was going to be going through. The last generation is dealing with the fact that we're still in exile, and for many generations we've been in exile, and oh, by the way, 
we haven't had the compassion of the Lord. We've had this punishment that our fathers brought on us, and we're we're in these trauma. And by the way, we're getting ready to go into the great tribulation, and all this trauma and everything's terrible, and so forth. And what what in the world is God going to do for us? And all of a sudden, He says. I want you to be comforted. I realize this is your feeling. I realize that that you think the following things, but let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. And one of the first things he talks about is, guess what? That wall of New Jerusalem. And he talks about the ministry of the 144,000. This is a verse about the ministry of the 144. Let me go ahead and just tell you real quickly, the quick study on the 144,000. Uh, they go through the great tribulation and they don't die. In fact, they are the welcoming committee for the Messiah when he returns to Jerusalem. They're the ones that welcome him into the city. And they're all present. They are the standout remnant. I believe the 144,000 are going to have a huge role and responsibility in bringing all the tribulation saints through that escape, survive, and endure during the great tribulation. And he refers to them as precious stones, making up this huge wall. And what's the wall make for? Comforting the saints. Remember, the the whole message is comfort, comfort. So the wall, if you're on the other side of the wall from the enemy, you feel comforted. You've come into the fortress of God. That's what that word means. Comfort means get on the other side of the wall. So this passage of Scripture has got a really powerful thing for it. Now, let me go ahead and give you an advance understanding of what's going to happen as we go through the next four weeks, as I give you the rest of the Hoftors of Consolation. The very next one, which is about Shoftim, about Judges, it's going to come from Isaiah 56 and verse 12. Let me take you there just real quickly. Isaiah 56 and verse 12 where it says, um, no, excuse me, Isaiah 51 and verse 12. Isaiah 51 and verse 12 says the following, I, even I, am the one who comforts you. So the subject is being comforted. Who's going to comfort us? Are we going to comfort one another? Is somebody else going to come along and comfort us? No, I, even I, God. I'm the one who's going to comfort you. I'm the one that's going to bring you back. I'm the one that's going to protect you. I'm the one that's going to forgive you. I'm the one that's bringing you to the kingdom. So that's a very powerful positive statement. Again, we call them the Haftors of Consolation. These are good things that come. Then the next one that with Kitese is going to come from Isaiah 54 and verse 1. Uh, which says the following. Uh, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Now, that's it starts with a joyous message. Shout for joy. But the verse they really hold on to in the Hoftors of Consolation is explaining what has happened here. I mean, how did we get kicked into all the nations? How did this whole dynamic have to happen? What was going on? Well, it's summed up for us in verse 7. For a brief moment I forsook you, but with great compassion I will gather you. 
See, part of the consolation Hofstra is talking about the final end-time gathering of the saints. It's talking about the greater exodus. It's talking about the events that lead to the great tribulation. It's talking about the 144,000, the remnant of Israel. It's talking about all these things coming together, and, and the, the chapter 54 is shout for joy. Oh, the, you thought you were without child. Let me tell you what's going to happen. You are going to increase dramatically. He's actually talking about what it's going to be like for you to be in the kingdom. When you're in the kingdom, you are going to be fruitful and multiply, and the increase will, will never end. And, and he's talking about you need to sing about this, and you need to shout for joy. Again, very positive message about what's coming. I, the Lord, will comfort you. You need to sing and shout for joy because, yes, for a moment, a brief moment, I forsook you, I punished you, but now I'm going to bring you back with compassion. The sixth one comes from Isaiah chapter 60, and this is the one that goes with the Torah portion, Kitavo. And in chapter 60... Verse 1, it says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, and for behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, his glory will appear upon you, and nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is the parallel passage that goes with, in the book of Revelation, that talks about in the final days of indignation of the great trib, there's going to be worldwide darkness. Yes, darkness will cover the whole earth, just like Isaiah says. However, for the remnant, those that belong to the Lord, arise, shine. Your light has come. While the world is in darkness, your light is going to become bright. In, the, in Egypt, when the children of Israel went through the judgment of darkness, which was the ninth judgment, it clearly says that the Israelites had luminaries in their houses, whereas the Egyptians were in darkness. So this is a reference to the great tribulation in the final days of it. So let's look at the last one. The last one goes with Nitzvim, uh, where I'm not talking to the ones that are standing here. And in, ver in chapter 30, he specifically talks about calling the remnant from out of all the nations of the world, from the remotest parts of the earth, the greater exodus coming to the end of the age. And in chapter 61 and verse 10, um, he says the following, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks herself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Um, so this final portion, uh, by the way, there's a parallel in uh, the book of Revelation to this. The parallel is, doesn't it say that the tribulation saints will don, don robes of righteousness? Does it not say that we're getting ready for the wedding of the Lamb? Well, that's exactly what this is talking about. So these Hoftors of Constellation, I gave you a quick review. Isaiah 40, verse 1, comfort my people. It goes all the way to the end when we don robes of righteousness and we become the bride of the Messiah. Well, that's our time for this week. I will be talking about these additional Hoftors in the weeks coming, but I wanted to give you a foretaste 
of what these Hoftors of Consolation are and how they come together as a set. This is, again, the oldest sermon that is known to be in the Bible, this particular teaching for it. Shabbat shalom to all of you. Shalom. If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to chapter 4, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again, that we can dig into your word and your instruction and that we can be blessed on this Sabbath day as we have uh, read and studied the Torah portion and the Haftorah portion, Lord. Father, I pray that uh, this Brit Hadashah portion, that we would be blessed as we look into the words of the New Testament, Lord, as it uh, relates to the Torah and as it encourages us in our faith. Father, I pray that your word uh, just comes alive for us here in this time of teaching. We bless you and we praise you for everything that you do in our lives. We give you all the honor, glory, and praise in this place. It's in your Son Yeshua that we pray. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Re'eh, which means see, uh, coming from Deuteronomy chapter 11, where it says, uh, Lord speaking through Moses, is saying, see, I set before you blessing and curse. And again, Moses is teaching that final generation of the children of Israel in the wilderness getting ready to cross over into the promised land. What follows is a uh, commandment, a plan for the children of Israel at some point in time once you go into the land to do something, something specific. And that specific thing is to go to the place where there is Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, a place that is called um, Shechem and is also later would become uh, Samaria, and that they would go to these two mountains and that you would go to one mountain and you would bless one mountain and you'd go to the other mountain and you'd curse that other mountain and that you would set up a monument that you would write the words of this covenant on that monument and that you would go to this place and that this is something you will do when the children of Israel were to go into the land. What immediately follows that after uh, that in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy is then when God starts talking about how there will be a place that God will put His name that is the place in which you are to make sacrifices, the places where you are to worship Him, and it is a prescribed place for the children of Israel to worship the Lord. And later on throughout the uh, Old Testament, we go and we see the story of the kings and, and the judges. And then King David is the one that then makes Jerusalem to be the capital. And God speaks through uh, uh, David to make Jerusalem to be that place where the worship of the Lord is to be. On Mount Moriah, where we will build the temple and the altar and the uh, Ark of the Covenant will be moved there. And that will be the mountain and the place where worship of God is done. Now, one of the things that we have here in, in the discussion of this is that um, we understand that the men, the children of Israel, used to make sacrifices to the Lord. And, and whenever we read back in the Old Testament, we see Abraham would set up an altar to the Lord, or uh, Isaac or Jacob would set up an altar to the Lord. Well, what's being described here now is that there is supposed to now be a place where all the worship of God is supposed to take place on this mountain or this place where uh, he is to be worshipped and where he will put his name. Well, there are different sects of Judaism, different uh, factions that uh, believe certain things. And one of the things that we will learn about and where it's referenced many times in the New Testament is that there is a group, this sect of Judaism, that is called the Samaritans. And the fundamental difference between the Samaritans and the rest of Jews is this. 
that they believe that Mount Gerizim, the place where God called the children of Israel to go to that mountain to set up a monument and to, to perform this ceremony there, they believe that was the mountain that God put His name and that that's where all sacrifices and all worship of Him is supposed to take place. This contrasts mainstream Judaism and the history of the kingdom of Israel to know that and believe that it is Jerusalem that is the city of the king, that is the city and where the temple of to the Jews are and where we are prescribed to worship the Lord. And there's connections, of course, to um, the mountain and the place where Jacob laid his head and where he saw Jacob's ladder, that we believe that to be Mount Moriah and the, that same place and that there's a connection and this is the place where God has put his name to worship. But needless to say, we have this divide between the Samaritans and the rest of the Jews. And Yeshua, when he was walking around and talking amongst the people, there was all of this discussion and people knew about this group called the Samaritans. And they were considered within Israel second-class citizens because they had a completely different belief system on where we are to worship the Lord. In fact, when the Messiah gives the, um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it's like all of these Jews, somebody was in need and all of these Jews just walked by, but it was the Samaritan that came and helped somebody and that truly that is what one's neighbor is, was the one that helped, uh, that, that uh, took care of that person that was in need and exactly what they needed to do. And so, but again, the question was, well, this was a Samaritan. The Samaritan is my neighbor? That's who I'm supposed to uh, consider to be, to be my neighbor and who... who uh, who I'm to love or who loves and cares for me, this person that we consider to be second-class citizens. This is the, just the, the atmosphere and the culture at the time. Well, here we have a story and that is one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospels. And we're going to John chapter 4. We were talking about the Samaritan woman at the well when the Messiah was in the, the area and the, the, the city of Samaria, where the Samaritans are. And what happens that follows in this conversation is one of the most honest and direct conversations that the Messiah ever gave or ever said that is recorded for us in the Gospels. He was asked many times, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And Yeshua always had some sort of very coy answer to, then, to, to whether he was, um, you know, he'd say, well, who do men say that I am? Or who is this? Or and he always gave this sort of this, this coy response. In this story... This is when Yeshua actually directly answered the question and said, yes, I am the Messiah. And he said it to a Samaritan woman at a well. And we have to sit there and look at the story and be like, well, why, why was he so direct? Why, why did he say it so directly to her and not, not to someone else? And what's really going on here? What else did the Messiah speak about and talk about here in this situation that we need to maybe pay attention to. If he was so honest about being the Messiah, then what else was he honest about in this conversation? So let us go now to John chapter 4. Let's, let's read this story, as many of us are familiar with, but let's draw out some of these nuances and some of these things that, again, these words that Messiah spoke are always just, just beautiful, and this is one of my favorite, favorite stories from the Gospels. Let's begin at verse 5. So he, the Messiah came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sechar, near the plot of ground where Jacob gave, his son, gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Yeshua, therefore, being weary from his journey, he thus sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Yeshua said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, 
How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This is the culture, again, that I was describing earlier. And Yeshua answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are greater than our father Jacob, who gives us this well, the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. Yeshua answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This is Yeshua, you know, giving one of those sort of standard messages that he's shared where the whole term and concept of receiving everlasting life is very prevalent in the New Testament and things that he taught. And when, the, when he was in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, you know, he said, you know, whoever drinks me, drinks of me will never thirst again. And that he uh, personifies himself as the living water, that if we partake of him, if we receive the life that he gives to us, we will then have eternal life. And so he uses these physical examples to explain these spiritual concepts of everlasting life. But what continues on here and what the Messiah continues to say to her gets a little bit more interesting and and an interesting point of discussion. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Yeshua said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Yeshua said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. First of all, she stops right there, and she's like, he says something to her that gets her attention, that knows that he knows something, and she immediately perceives, okay, This guy has my attention because he knows my family history, that she had had five husbands and that she was currently with someone who's not her husband and that there, this is, he used this and and showed his power to know what was going on in this woman's life to get her attention. And she immediately then takes point to where it's all like, okay, this this is the difference that is between us. I perceive that you're a prophet, but you're a prophet of the Jews, not a prophet of the Samaritans. And that it's all like, then what do you have to say about this? But please tell me, like, because this is the biggest conflict between our peoples. Tell me what is is right in this situation. She brings it up. Yeshua says to her this in verse 21, it says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know that what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. And he called himself the Messiah because she was hearing this this prophetic word, this prophetic message. And it still was like, it's like, okay, he's saying all these things or whatever. And it's all like, okay, there's still some confusion here. Well, when the Messiah comes, he'll he'll clear this up. 
he'll clear this up because what you're saying, you're you're sort of speaking in this sort of this this riddle kind of somewhat. So uh, when the Messiah comes, he'll clear this up, and Yeshua is like, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is who who is saying these things to you, and that I that I now have spoken as the Messiah. What follows later is, is the woman becomes very excited. She has a testimony of him being the Messiah, and she goes into the city and goes to share with all the people of the city what she has now learned. And, and, and what happens is a great number of people are, are saved and, be, and believe because of this interaction. But what I find most interesting about this passage that is an incredible encouragement to us, as we go back and we read the Old Testament, we read the Torah, and we see this instruction about Jerusalem and that we, you know, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that we pray um, for Israel and the modern state of Israel. And for those of us in the Messianic movement, we desire to one day be able to worship the Lord as we once worshipped Him before. And we want to, to be in Jerusalem and praise Him and worship Him. But we don't have Jerusalem. We don't have a temple. We don't have an altar. We can't worship Him as the Torah prescribes. And then you have the Samaritans over here that have Mount Gerizim, and they still believe that that's where the, the worship should be, but they still are people who are zealous for following the commandments of God that they simply believe it's on this other mountain and that that's where it should be. And so then I'm sure the conflict in, in the first century might have been, well, it's like, okay, well, the Romans are, are, are here in control all the time, and, and it's all like, you know, do we really have, where should we worship? You know, it's like when Jerusalem fell, when the Jews went into Babylonian captivity. And it's like we didn't get to worship the Father then. And so what would happen if we were to lose our mountain or our place of worship? Well, the Messiah says that there will come a time, an hour that is coming. And then he says, and now is. This is that's always a very, very curious uh, phrase when the Messiah says that uh, the time is now. The time is now. The first century, the time was now. To worship the Father in spirit and truth, and it's not about worshiping on one mountain or the other, because that's what he said. He said, well, you will, when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but you'll worship the Father. That's the encouragement to us. In the, in, the, in the time and the place where we now live, we don't have Jerusalem to worship. And we're also not Samaritans, so we don't worship uh, at Mount Gerizim. So how do we worship the Lord? He said, so here, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And such a worship is what is prescribed because God is spirit. And we got to balance spiritual and physical things. We got to balance praising Him in the spirit and also in truth. Truth being the, the, a, a physical construct that we understand that we, um, we have evidence that God has saved His people. We have evidence that God is the, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we, we believe truthfully in our mind that He is the Lord and He's worthy of worship. And so we might know all these things academically that He is God, but do we worship Him in spirit? Do our hearts cry out for Him? Do our emotions connect with Him to worship Him? Because He's asking for both. You can't have one without the other. You can't just systematically believe a set of creeds and doctrines and say, this is how we worship God, because we know God and we follow these commandments and we do these things all this way, you know, to the letter, uh, you know, to the T, and here we go, that we follow God. And we know that God is there then you're just a bunch of robots who don't ever cry out your heart. If you just do what your rabbi tells you to do, well, then are you, where's your spirit? Where's your zeal for the Lord? And that's not me particularly pointing directly to Judaism, but that's just what in some people, their heart to worship the Lord just isn't there with emotion or with the spirit. And then you have people that also worship Him 
so spiritually over spiritualize anything that there's no grounded nature to their religious beliefs. They have no custom. They have no tradition. They have no structure to worship the God of order. And it can be just become chaotic if you only worship the God in spirit. We have to worship in both spirit and truth. They both have to come together at the same time. And that's the balance that Yeshua is teaching us here and the encouragement for us in the world where we live in, where we can worship the Father in spirit and truth. We have to do both. We have to understand that both are necessary in the true worship of the Lord, wherever we might be, that it's not necessarily just about physical things. It's not about where we are, what mountain we're on worshiping Him. But what truly matters is where our heart is, where our mind is, and whether we are fully committed to worshiping Him and praising Him in all things that we do. That's what we need to do, and that's what we as believers and followers of the Lord need to recognize. We can talk about Jerusalem. We can talk about Mount Gerizim. We can talk about all these things, but ultimately, how do you worship the Father? Do you worship Him with your whole heart? Do you love Him with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, all of your strength, all everything that makes you who you are? Are you all in to worshiping the Lord? Or do you only dabble in it and it's only a weekend thing? Or just one part of you kind of like, I I know that God is God, but ultimately my heart is for something else. We need to make sure that we have that balance and that we truly are the fulfillment of this prophecy, that we might be the true worshipers of the Father who walk in spirit and in truth. In our Torah portion, we also have the passage and the instruction uh, back in uh, Deuteronomy that talks about a dreamer of dreams, those that would, um, that would come and would be a false prophet that would mislead the people. Um, that passage uh, here is in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13, where it teaches us that if there one among you rises up and becomes a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, gives you signs and wonders and all these things, but tells you to go and worship other gods, that you are not to follow them. And this is one of the biggest arguments that has ever been made coming out of mainstream Judaism as to why Yeshua is not the Messiah and why Yeshua is not the Savior and He is not the Son of God is because sometimes when we project Yeshua and what He came and what He did and what He taught, there are um, denominations of Christianity that very much have considered that Yeshua came, Jesus came, to do away with the law of Moses to go following after another line of of creeds and doctrines and that these certain things here in the uh, Torah, in the Old Testament, those things are done away with. Well, if that's true, well, then according to Torah, then anyone who is promoting that particular testimony or that particular teaching um, should be killed and put to death because they are a prophet, a dreamer of dreams that is telling us to go and follow after other gods and is altering the customs of Moses and the teachings and the traditions of Torah And according to Torah, that person is not allowed to live. They're a dreamer of dreams, and they are promoting a false teaching and religion. The question we need to go back to is this, is did Yeshua come to do away with the customs of Moses and the law? The answer is no. By His own words, He says, I don't come to abolish, but I come to fulfill. To fill it up full of meaning, to make it perfect, to to, to teach what is really truly going on. That's why He's here. That's what he's here for, and that's what his intention is. So this passage here is very fascinating in our Torah portion. So if you would now go with me to 1 John, to chapter 4, because this exact same language is touched on 
here in the first letter of John talking about us to beware of false prophets, false teachers. That it's like this is directly connected to the commandment back in Deuteronomy 13 that says, be wary of people that might rise up from among you, even among your family, that somebody might show up and say they perform signs and wonders and, 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 and they say, God has sent me to do this and this is what we are now to do. But if that testimony is leading you away from something, that's when you have to be mindful of it. First John chapter 4, it says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Yeshua, Messiah, has come in the flesh, is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Yeshua, Messiah, has come in the flesh and is not, and is not of God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is great in you is greater than he is who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God, and he who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. But this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is where we're contrasting the, the, those that might rise up and has a spirit to teach something, to teach encouragement, to teach strength, to teach something that somebody needs to hear. But if they come bearing a spirit that causes us to confess something against what Yeshua the Messiah has done and what He has come and His testimony is, then that's a spirit that's of the world. That's a spirit of Antichrist against the Christ, against Yeshua being the Messiah. And that anybody who comes along and tries to teach you and lead you another direction, you need to be wary of those spirits and understand that that spirit is an error and not a spirit of truth. And that we obviously need to understand that the one we worship, the one that we follow, He is greater than all of those other spirits. He created all of those other spirits and He has dominion over all of those other spirits. And so if we have that spirit of God inside of us, inside of our hearts, then we too have power over all of those other things. And we can reject those things, the things of the world, because of the spirit that is inside of us. This same contrast is, is very important. There is not a contradiction between Deuteronomy 13 and John 1, 4. 1 John, sorry, 1 John 4. Is that when we sit here and we say it's all like, well, this one's talking about faith in the Messiah. And this one's talking about following the Torah and the law of Moses. And if we continue to go with basically what has been the teaching of men and the teaching of man-made world religions and says, those two things are opposed to each other. So you have to choose one or the other. Is one leading you away from faith in Yeshua to go and follow and, and, and keep the commandments in Torah? Because you're rejecting that. That's the spirit of Antichrist. If you want to go follow the law and become legalistic, that's the spirit of Antichrist because it's taking you away from following Yeshua the Messiah. Oh, but if you follow Yeshua the Messiah, then, oh, you're just, you're just worshiping a man and you're just worshiping somebody that says, we now have to pray to him and he was not really God and that that is, and, and we, he's came to, and he's altering the customs of Moses and we're not supposed to keep the law if we follow the testimony of Jesus Christ. So then he's a dreamer of dreams. He's a false prophet and the Torah is in conflict with Yeshua. The problem is, is those of us sit here in the Messianic movement, we're sitting on the bridge between the two and we're just trying to not pull our hair out because of this conflict. When Yeshua was the Word of God, 
He was the Word that became flesh. And that, yes, that testimony of Yeshua, the testimony of salvation, is the same testimony that we need as followers of Torah. And that we, it's not in conflict. Now, if you say Yeshua came to alter the customs of Moses and take us away from the teachings of the law of Moses, well, then, yeah, we got a problem. But Yeshua didn't come to do that. You can be a believer in Jesus, the Messiah, and keep Torah and the commandments. In fact, belief in Him as our Savior is we know we need a Savior because we have transgressed the law. If there is no law, if we don't follow the law, then why is there a need for the Savior? Because there's no transgression of the law if it's been done away with. It's the same Bible, same 66 books. God is the same God of the Old Testament as He is of the New Testament. And when He sent His Son... He also is the lawgiver. He's not going to send his son to contradict and do away with the law and the covenant that he gave to his people and the covenant that is supposed to go to the children of Israel that then is supposed to go to the, all the nations, the covenant he gave to Abraham. Through him and his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the good news that all through the seed of Abraham, guess what? Yeshua was in the lineage and the line of Abraham. And that in his seed, the promised son, which, I, which Isaac was a symbol of, and Yeshua was the spiritual and physical fulfillment of, the promised son that would come and would, all the families of the earth would be blessed by his testimony, by believing in him. The two are not at war with each other. They are not contradicting each other. But we always have people on other sides of the ledger that are trying to lead us to one way or the other that we need to follow Torah, and then if you study, you study yourself right out of believing in Yeshua, even though you came out of the church, even though you have a testimony of being a born-again Christian, but you go far enough into studying Torah and teaching Torah, and you go far enough toward Judaism and what Judaism teaches, they'll tell you, well, you can't believe in Yeshua anymore. And then you have a spirit that is leading you away from a testimony that does not confess that Yeshua has come in the flesh, the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and He's our Savior. And if there's a spirit that's telling you that, they're in conflict with the scripture here. And then if you're rejecting the commandments of Moses and following after Yeshua, and it's like all we have is grace, grace, grace. That's all we need. And we don't need any of those other things. Well, then by uh, the testimony of Deuteronomy and the words of Moses, then Yeshua uh, deserved to die. Let us be the ones, once again, that spirit and truth. Remember that balance that I was talking about before? that we need to sort of understand the balance between the two and not just go to one side or the other. You need both. That we can sit here and read the same Bible, read the same Scripture, and instead of thinking that they're always at, con at war with each other, let us think that they are speaking about the same thing. They're just saying it in a different way. We need to have that balance. We need to walk in spirit and truth, and we need to obey the commandments of God that He has given to us and following what the Yeshua was teaching us. And Yeshua was teaching us Torah. He was teaching us, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two do all the law and the prophets hang. Not saying we're doing away with it, but He's teaching us how. He's giving us the example of how to follow Torah rightly and appropriately. And this is the balance, of course, that we need to have. And we need always be cautious. Any prophets, dreamer of dreams, charlatans that come and, and make a brand new YouTube channel. And man, what they just said was compelling and sensational. And what charisma did they have? Have you seen the teaching by so-and-so? Well, what is he teaching? What's the content? Well, he's teaching us that we need to do this and, and, and shun this and shun that. It's all like, hmm, 
I'm going to trust the word of the Lord. I'm going to trust what the Lord has already spoken to me and has taught me about these things so that we, so that I be that one that Yeshua spoke of, the worshiper that, that, that walks in spirit and in truth. The next, the, the next passage I want to go to, I want to talk about the theme really of our Torah portion. The, the title of it is Re'eh, which means see. See that I set before you blessing and curse. And that there is a, uh, there's a passage that is talking about how and trying to teach us to always be mindful of what we do. Here in Deuteronomy, we have a lot of these. Uh, sometimes it seems like the Lord, the, Moses is saying the same thing over and over and over again, talking about that, you know, follow these commandments. When you enter into the land, you know, do not turn away from the Lord. Do not have your eyes go lusting after other idols. And this whole theme and teaching of that our eyes can be deceiving is very prevalent in this Torah portion. Teaching us, of course, not to, uh, not to covet the gold and the silver and the idols of the, of the nations that you're going to go in and you're going to dispossess. And that there's a very specific verse all the way back here in uh, Deuteronomy 13 at verse 18. It says, Because you've listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all of His commandments, which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. And see, ultimately, that's what we need to see is that well, everything that we do has to be right in the eyes of the Lord. Not right in our own eyes, but in what the Lord sees. And we know the Lord, He doesn't just have physical eyes that He sees what we physically do. He can see our heart. He can see our mind. He knows what's truly in our heart in the things that we do and the way that we act. And so we have to make sure that we're paying attention to what is right in the eyes of the Lord rather than what is right in our own eyes. And this teaching is, is given to us in the New Testament, of course, if we turn to Mark Chapter 9, where at verse 47 specifically, in fact, actually I want to read this whole, this whole passage here because this is talking about Yeshua that's warning us in the things that we do and warning us to not um, to be, mi- be mindful of our actions, to be mindful of the things that we do, and to pay very close attention to that. And in fact, Mark, you know, being one of the more, he was more of the, one of the more direct of the Gospels here. This entire passage is uh, convicting, to say the least. So let me actually start here at verse 42, and let's read what the Messiah is teaching us here of uh, Mark chapter 9. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to, if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were to be thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm, uh, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And it's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell, into hell fire where the worm <laughs> does not die and the fire is not quenched. Quite a very direct teaching here, and this wording is, is a little bit stronger than some of the other Gospels, where we already have been taught <coughs> excuse me, that our eyes can be deceiving. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, not by sight, and that our eyes can very much deceive us, cause us to stumble. Of course, it's through the eye and the eye gate that much of our physical temptation comes against us. 
and that we have to be mindful of the things that we see and how we see and perceive things to be. As I said, our actions are very important. If your foot causes you to stumble, if your feet carry you to someplace you're not supposed to be, the Messiah is warning us, cut us off, cut it off. You'd be better to be lame than to fall into that sin. Or if your hand causes you to stumble, or if your eye, it'd be better to have one eye rather than two because your eye causes you to stumble. Now, I don't know if I, I've never met anybody that have actually done any of the things that the Messiah is, is suggesting. And in fact, you know, we might question one's sanity if somebody was to ever do that. But ultimately, what we're to be taught is this. Be mindful of your actions. Be mindful of the things you say, the things that you do. Hold yourself to a higher standard. Be careful of what you, where you let your eye wander to. Don't do what you feel is right in your own sight, because eyes can be deceiving. Let us follow what the Lord wants us to do and what we might see in His eyes. Our eyes, like I said, can, can, we, have to, we have to close our eyes, close our physical eyes, and open our spiritual eyes to see, to have the vision of what the Lord is trying to teach us. Let's go now to Matthew chapter 7. Here, starting at verse 1, it says this, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the, spe the speck in your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. This is the, the, the thing. Do not judge by what you see. One of my uh, great teachers that I love, my friend Brian Serrano, he said this. This is a quote attributed to him. That eyes have this ability to reflect. And sometimes if you see a speck in your brother's eye, that might simply be nothing in their eye but a reflection upon you and what's in your eye. If you have a plank and you have something that's hindering your sight and you see what you perceive to be a speck, it's like that's just a reflection upon you. There's actually might not be anything wrong with your brother whatsoever. And that's something you have to be mindful of to, again, be careful what you see. Your eyes can be deceiving. What we need to do is we need to have equal weights and measures, have that balance, walking in spirit and truth, that when we judge somebody, we use honor, an honorable scale and a measure by which any judgment is made, because whatever method you judge one, that will come back upon you. You have to be careful of that. You need to be mindful of that. Be mindful of your actions and follow what the Lord has said. It's very simple. Moses laid this out. I lay before you blessing and curse. Choose what you will do. Will you follow what the Lord has said, who will give you life and give you everlasting life if you walk in a testimony of Yeshua? Or will you reject that? Will you choose death and curse and choose to not follow the words of the Lord? If you just follow your eyes, one might say, oh, but all that good stuff is over there. I'm just going to go ahead and go do that because your eyes have deceived you. But instead, set aside your own eyes and look through yourself and see yourself as the, as the Messiah, as the Lord will see you. And what is right in His eyes for you to walk and for you to follow and for you to, in all the actions that you do. In the same way that our entire life, we're supposed to, as believers, set aside our physical life, take up your cross and follow Him. Die unto yourself so that you can have the eternal life that He has to give. 
Reject the physical water to receive the spiritual water that when you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. Set aside your physical sight. And all, even though it's all these things that you can see, set those things aside and let the Lord give you His spiritual vision and do what is right in His eyes. This is what we can learn from our Torah portion this week. And I pray that we would be blessed and we would be, once again, that people that walk in spirit and truth, that we will be the true worshipers of the Father and that the hour is now for us to worship Him with the balance, understanding the spirit and the truth, the physical and the spiritual, and how we are to walk uprightly before Him with a testimony of Yeshua the Messiah and a keeper of His law and His commandments. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this time and this teaching. Father, I pray that we would be blessed on this Sabbath day, be encouraged and strengthened. Father, we, uh, we, we bless You, Father, and pray that we could be the fulfillment of these prophecies, Lord, that we can be the people that the Messiah spoke of. Father, I pray that we would continue to dig into Your Word daily as it feeds us and nourishes us and blesses us. Um, Father, I pray that You would just make the words come alive and be powerful to us each and every time that we open the Scripture and have it not be a Sabbath thing, Lord. But Father, I pray that we would turn to Your Word and instruction in any time of need, and not just in a time of need, Lord, but also in times of peace as well. And may we turn to You and look to You in all things that we do. Fill us with Your Holy Spirit, Father, so that we act uprightly and appropriately before You. Give us Your mind, give us Your emotions, Lord, and may we set aside our physical lives, Lord, to worship You and to walk uprightly before You. We bless You and we thank You on this Sabbath day. We thank You in Yeshua's name. We pray all of these things. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.